The Pace Line is produced by The Cycling Independent, the only cycling media completely free of commercial influence. We are community-supported and dedicated to the whole of cycling. As our tagline says, if you ride bikes, you're one of us. From the Cycling Independent, this is The Pace Line, the podcast on two wheels. I'm Patrick Brady, and with me is my co-host, John Lewis. Each week, we take a look at how cycling fits in our lives. Uh, <clears throat> are we are we riding bikes there? Uh, yeah. Uh, I have ridden bikes a few times uh, in the last week. Uh, uh... They were those rides were pleasurable and also um, told me exactly where I am in my fitness life, <laughs> uh, which is in early February. All is on track. <laughs> Everything felt as exactly as hard as it was supposed to. So, you know, what's to complain? What about you? Uh, I'm, I'm getting out there. I'm. I'm managing my time a little better than I have been. Uh, and so even if the rides are sometimes a little on the short side, uh, it is of course nice to be out there and, uh, it continues to think it's spring here. We had a very strange, this is the obligatory part where we talk about weather, but what happened this last weekend was really bizarre in that I woke up Saturday morning and the wind chill had it in the negative teens or twenties. And it was brutally cold like that all day. And then on Sunday it reached 48. (laughs) So, so on Saturday I deemed it too cold to walk the dog. And on Sunday I rode my bike in shorts. (laughs) So, you know, I'm I'm going to say that to be a cyclist is to be a small scale meteorologist. I mean, that's the thing. Weather has such a big effect on, you know, how we ride, where we ride, when we ride. Yeah. You know, I can never seem to really get very far from it. <clears throat> no, it's true. It's true. And everything comes into play, right? Like, well, if it rained three days ago... Has it has have the trails drained uh, if it's winter time? Are they frozen solid or are they soft? You know, it's all the things. It's all the things. It's yeah. not only like what's what am I going to feel like as I'm moving through the 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 world, but also, you know, where can I ride without doing any harm or how much fender do I have to put on in order not to come back, you know, and undress in the shower? Right. Yeah. Yeah. So it's all those things. Um, When I rode last week, I actually thought of this podcast because I had the um, beautiful New England experience of headwind in all directions. (laughs) (laughs) Like on my way away from home, I was like, whoa, this is wow. Okay, that's a lot of headwind, but that's okay because I'll come back quick. 
nope. <laughs> Thanks for playing. Right. We have a right. lovely parting gift for you. It's called fatigue. Yes. Oh, uh, yeah. You know. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. All part of the good fun. Yeah. I, I mean, there's nothing like when you get those wild swings uh, in different uh, conditions. Uh, my favorite example of all time came within the course of a single cyclocross race. Uh, this was Danvers, Massachusetts. Oh, so what, a little, yeah, a little north of Worcester, right? Uh, n- well, <coughs> due north of Boston. Oh, okay. N- near, P- near Peabody, kid. Ah, ah Danvers, Peabody. Peabody. Yeah. yeah. Right. Linfield. Uh, and uh, at the start of the race, uh, the temperature was right around 60 degrees. And by the time I was changing clothes at my car, it was below freezing. <laughs> and I mean, you know, everybody else like had a completely different race that day than I did. I was, you know, I was in the first field to go off at eight o'clock in the morning. And uh, yeah, I, I like it was draw. I could feel it dropping as I was changing clothes afterward. <laughs> so yeah, sometimes when the weather comes in, she comes in quick. <laughs> it's an interesting life. Yes. Oh, yeah. I wonder what Kafka would have to say about it. It would be in German and I wouldn't understand. Um, <laughs> Moving right along. So this week I did a useless review of the soft ride beam. I haven't gotten to read that yet and I can't wait to because it, that's one of those things that's so easy to bag on in a way. And yet. <sighs> Well, you know, and that's part of what I tried to get to. It's one of those bikes widely reviled and mocked and yet also loved. Yeah, yeah. Uh, From the 90s. Yep. I'll let folks read that piece to learn more about the bike or not, actually, (laughs) Uh, which, frankly, I've never ridden. I've never ridden one. Um, That's the kernel of why the review is useless, but I don't want to dig into that right now. Okay. Uh, okay. What are we so- going to dig into? The soft ride bikes may or may not have been good at being bikes. I suspect okay. they were better at the time than we give them credit for now. And I also think the end of that evolutionary line came about because the UCI just up and banned the design in 2007. Uh. Well, keep Bear going, with keep me. Going. Yep. Yep. So my poll today is actually about the UCI and how how it has stifled innovation in bikes oh, historically. God. Okay. Okay. This is not an original idea on my part, and I, <laughs> and, and I hadn't even really thought that much about it until my friend Phil uh, Phil Cavell from CycleFit, who wrote the excellent book The Midlife Cyclist, mm-hmm. brought it up to me that the bike is essentially a Victorian invention whose evolution has been manipulated badly by a group of people who are not engineers and mostly just want to control the bike for business purposes. Yep. 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 So you have the soft ride beam being banned. You have them telling Graham Obrey he can't ride any of the cool bikes he built. Yeah, and there now that's the, a travesty. That, and there yeah. is this idea there that they're trying to preserve cycling as a human effort competition rather than an engineering competition. Mm-hmm. But when has it ever not been that? 
<laughs> and why does bike racing need to be the tail wagging the dog of the entire cycling world? You know, it's like um, it's like the UCI is a selectively permeable membrane that just lets through designs from powerful uh, companies with yes. a vested interest in their success. And yep. then if you're Graham Obrey and you make something super cool, they're like, sorry, sorry, guy. Yeah. Yeah. They they sort of had a, a, a crusade against that one dude. It was it was really ugly. Uh, yeah. Yeah. <clears throat> we um, might auto explain for uh, listeners who don't actually know who he is since his time in the spotlight was uh, 20. 30 years ago, 30. Oh man, I'm old. Um, so he's a Scot and in the UK time trialing is the thing because group writing is not a thing because of laws there. And so putting on a mass start race is, uh, not an easy thing to do, but putting on a time trial is something that happens seemingly like every hour, uh, on the weekend, somebody's throwing a, a time trial out there. And so he got to be crazy good, super, super fast as a time trialist. Um, and then he got it in his head that he was going to go after the hour record because he was that kind of fast. And then uh, he hauled off and built his own bike and came up with his own position and broke the hour record. Uh, and the UCI because they couldn't control him in any way, shape or form up to that point, uh, basically banned a single person. It's a little more complicated than that. They, but yeah, they banned his, the position that he yep. put himself in on his homemade bike, famously yep. made with parts from a washing, washing machine. machine. Yep. Uh, and then they banned the various bikes and then he came up with a new position, which they subsequently banned. Yep. If you want to read all about it, uh, his book, The Flying Scotsman, is an excellent read. Yes. And I think he's a super smart guy that super dumb people decided didn't have much to offer. But, you know, the thing is, the UCI might argue they're not actually telling you what you can't ride. But they are. But that is certainly one of the knock-on effects of the paradigm they've established. And I firmly believe we could all be riding better bikes if the guys in Switzerland could get their mitts off the thread of innovation. <laughs> Part of the issue, I think, for most of us, I mean, for me, certainly, is that we're not engineers. Our definition of what a bike is is determined by the bikes we've seen. So we can't even visualize what a different bike might look like. Yeah. Or a different class of bikes might look like. Now, my take might also be informed my, by my general disdain for authority and control. <laughs> or it might be legit. And now I put it to you, Patrick, to mm. tell me how much of this is in my head and how much is a real problem. Understanding, of course, that both may be true to some extent. Oh, I... I'm going to argue that the UCI is maybe the worst thing that ever happened to cycling. Oh, that that is a hot take. And I like it. Yeah. Um, I mean, it, it, look at any corner of the sport where they've exerted their muscle and it, it could absolutely be healthier. No matter where you look, if the UCI's fingers are in it, that piece of the sport could be 
healthier, have more innovation, have more people participating. Uh, I mean, look, I am terrified of the UCI getting their mitts on gravel racing. Yeah. I, it is, from everything I've seen, it is guaranteed to mess up that part of the sport. They'll start instituting rules. I mean, why would anyone allow a governing body made up of people who've never done the thing make up the rules about the thing? Yes. I, that was one of Ayrton Senna's big complaints with uh, the, the governing body for Formula One. It's like, you're not a driver. You're not out there. You're not putting your life at risk. You have no idea what you're talking about. And, uh, you know, hopefully more often than not, um, no one's putting their life at risk when they're doing a, a gravel event. But, you know, the, the, the rules that trickled down from the UCI into USA Cycling um, that govern, like, what what a road race can be and what you have to do to have a sufficiently safe and governable uh, road event, gravel racing would never have happened. Mm. I mean, for me, when I first found out about the Grasshopper Adventure Series, uh, it was unfortunately like mm, 10 years after I'd last carried a license. And so not not that being a licensed racer was the thing, but I was no longer racer fit. So I was just going out and riding these events. But to me, the grasshoppers were everything I loved about cycling rolled up into a, a wonderfully social event where people weren't jerks. Nobody's screaming at anyone. Nobody's punching me in the thigh. Um, Yes, that happened in a breakaway once. Um, yeah. that, was, that came at me. I mean, that happens to me at the grocery store all the time. But uh, go on. Tell me. Tell me more. <laughs> um, anyway, you know, the the nature of the courses that the grasshoppers were just would never, ever have been approved by USA Cycling. Those events would not have happened. And, um, you know, while the old CAS uh, course is no longer run. I mean, old Kaz is one of the most fun days I've ever had on the bike. It's a couple of those are up there, you know, top 10 all time best days on the bike. It, it was just, they were gorgeous days and they were on roads that would never get approved. And you're, you know, riding on these loose surfaces and I have gone way too far down the gravel, <laughs> the rabbit hole. Let's turn this in a different direction. The modern mountain bike. Okay. Yes. Yes. The let's take the average trail bike. Okay. Say 130 travel in the front, 120 travel in the rear. Um, a little chip that you can flip that will either uh, raise or lower your bottom bracket, depending on pedal strikes and how... Uh, Yes, lots of those bikes have them. Uh, uh, for the listeners out there playing the home version, the look on John's face was uh, borderline mystified. Um, but, you know, there's all this innovation in mountain bikes, and it came in a sphere of the sport that UC the UCI had no participation in. 
they couldn't do anything to govern innovation in mountain bikes. And look at what mountain bikes can do now compared to what they were circa 1996. I mean, you know, if, if it was up to the UCI, we'd still be on 26 inch wheels. We'd still have short top tubes. We'd still have long stems. We'd still be going over the bar. Um, you know, it's just, they, they have not helped the sport at all ever. Yeah. I mean, this is what really troubles me is that they, they do let things through. They do allow progress, but they are the filter. Um, and, and they don't know enough about the sport, you know, from a technical standpoint to, to be reasonable arbiters. No, I don't think they are. And I think also that uh, what we end up with is a paradigm where engineering really does matter, mm -hmm. but only approved engineering. So it's it's this sort of false uh, premise that, well, by controlling the bike, we're controlling we're making this more about the rider than the bike. But it's never. Sorry, Lance, it's never been about the bike. <laughs> yeah. Um, you know, another way to, to look at this, another lens to look through uh, is what happened when uh, Felt designed uh, their IA model. Uh, that was a triathlon specific bike. It was as aerodynamic as they could figure out how to make it and, you know, make it strong and serviceable and yada. Um, the aerodynamic sections of that frame violated the UCI's set uh, ratios for uh, length to width of, of uh, the arrow shape. I'm, I'm losing some of my vocabulary here. But they they have determined what you're allowed to have in terms of an aerodynamic shape uh, on bicycle parts, um, you know, and it's like, well, why did you limit that? Uh, you know, there's not a point at which something's be going to become so aero that you're not going to have to pedal anymore. Yeah. And there's always going to be differences in in gear. You know, there will always be differences that way. But. Uh, felt looked at what their impact in the triathlon world was and how many people were buying their bikes, their time trial bike to race as a triathlon bike. And they said, I don't know. What if we just make something specific for triathlon that you could never take to a, a USA cycling, uh, time trial. Mm. And, uh, they killed with that bike. Mm. I mean, it's, it has won, uh, it has been under somebody who has won uh, Ironman Kona. So, you know, there's another example of where someone had to step outside of the UCI system to come up with a fresh idea. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Well, I guess that was a softball then, uh, based on the soft ride. See what I did there? Uh, yeah, I did. I did. I I'm going to say something about the soft ride beam, though, having having actually ridden one. Yes. The the uh, gentle pogo stick sway is highly disconcerting. Um, but the thing that really completely unnerved me and made me not ever want to climb on another bike with a soft ride beam ever again was the fact that it would it would also wiggle a little bit side to side. Yeah, my um, my 
what I'll call straw man defense of the soft ride being a good bike isn't necessarily about the bikes as they existed being good, (laughs) but rather saying that those bikes may not have been good, but that line of thought might not have been bad. You could you could stiffen and stabilize that thing in a way that may have worked better, given no more time to evolve, you know, today's elastomers, et cetera, et cetera. But instead, it just got drowned in the bathtub. Yeah. Yeah. I, you know, to be fair to the UC on that one, by 2007, nobody yeah. was, well, nobody this was is, building with those anymore. Sure. But this is uh, this was this is uh, another thought, really, which is if it's not good, if if it's not good, will take care of it. it. Yeah. The market will take care of it. Why yeah. ban it? Yeah. 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 Right. Uh, yeah. Now, what would be really cool is if Dwan Shepard, the CEO of Comotion, were listening and we had a call in uh, opportunity because I would have encouraged Dwan to call in because Comotion was known for making tandems with the soft ride beam, sometimes for both Captain and Stoker, but especially like a, a normal seat tube for the Captain and then a soft ride beam for the Stoker because. Um, being a stoker is not the most comfortable experience in the whole world. I don't understand why that is, but you talk to anybody who's ridden a single and then been a stoker and they're like, yeah, it's, uh, it's much harsher on the bottom. And so, Mm. uh, the soft ride beam got massive thumbs up from stokers all over the country and to some degree all over the world. And commotion really led the charge uh, using those, uh, those soft right beams. Well, let's pretend Dwan called and said all those things. Thanks, Dwan. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Okay. <laughs> we solved that. Yeah. Alrighty. I think at this point we should take a break, uh, check ourselves and then we will be back. Hi, it's John. I hope you're enjoying the podcast and that you find something you like to read regularly on the Cycling Independent. Increasingly, cycling media is either dominated by clickbait, listicles, banner ads, and cross-marketing campaigns, or it's out of business. We're trying to buck that trend by being a reader and listener-supported site. That's where we gain our independence from a model that's just not working very well. So if you can, please consider our $3 subscription. It's a cup of coffee. It's a beer. It's an amount you can part with. There are $5 and $10 subscriptions too. If you're more enthusiastic about what we do or more financially secure, have a look at those. But $3 takes us an awfully long way. The point is, we need your support to keep doing what we do. Thanks for considering it. Okay, we're back with the baseline, the podcast on two wheels. What are you pulling on this week? So I recently spoke to a friend. I, I think this was Monday. Um, and I was joking about how I'd done a hike the previous weekend that had left me sore enough that I was contemplating doing a recovery ride. Uh, and he asked why I would ride my bike to recover from hiking. So I asked if he'd ever done a recovery ride. No. Uh, 
of the many things that we've discussed on this show, I don't think we've ever discussed just what a proper recovery ride is. I mean, going back all the way to episode one, I don't know that that concept has ever come up. Um, And I think this is a worthy topic because in my own past, the people who I thought generally knew the most about fitness, the racers, uh, understood recovery rides the least. Um, I know from previous conversations, lots of people think that recovery rides are just easy rides like endurance rides, but shorter. Um, Done right, they are not. Uh, In an endurance ride, you go easy, but the idea is that your heart rate is a little elevated. You know, you can breathe through your nose, but you're going hard enough to sweat. With With a recovery ride, the idea is to go as easy as possible and still be riding. Um, have you ever done one of those slow races where, you know, <laughs> you cover like a hundred feet and, you know, whoever covers that distance, the slowest wins. I, uh, you mean, have you ever tracks uh, had a track stand contest, but okay. uh, well, a proper slow race does not permit track stands. Oh, you have to be moving. You, you must yeah. be moving. I, I haven't done one, but I would like to. Yeah, uh, I thought I was going to kill at it, and I, I did not. Uh, <laughs> I, I, w- I was like sixth from slowest. <laughs> you failed it slow? I did, I did, yeah, yeah. I think um, I'd be good at it, but go so on. <laughs> a, a recovery ride is a little bit like that. I mean, that's taken to a, a Kafka-esque extreme. The point is to move the legs, but not tax the legs. Mm. Now... I've done self-massage in the past to aid recovery, and I'm going to just betray the fact that I'm not good at it. I'm bad, in fact. I'm, I'm mm. bad. I can, I can massage other people, uh, and I, I can do a good massage uh, on someone else, but I really am just no good at massaging myself. I don't know if it's positioning or touch or what, but I'm just lousy. But a proper recovery ride is much like massage. The idea is that in moving the legs, blood will flow through the muscles and flush away the lactic acid and whatever other detritus is in there. Um, But the trick is in going easy enough not to fatigue the muscle in any way. Decades ago, I recall a friend saying at the outset of a recovery ride, I don't want to feel the pedals today. And honestly, that helped inform my sense of recovery rides, but it would take another mm, four or five years before I really understood them. Uh, He also got one thing wrong that day, showing up for a group ride. Yep. Uh, Yeah. uh, (laughs) That's, uh, I'll, I'll get to that in a second. So how easy can you go? It's an interesting question, and it would be silly if recovery rides didn't work. But I've gotten home from many a recovery ride feeling better than when I left. Um, Okay. Uh, Oh, number one son just got home. Uh, So since this is prescriptive, here's my checklist for what goes into a good recovery ride. Go alone. A rider's ability to go easy, this is Brady's law, by the way, <laughs> a rider's ability to go easy is inversely proportional to the number of people on the ride. I buy it. Yeah. 
uh, it's been proven more true for me than I'd like. Uh, yes. Yes. Um, I'd much rather Brady's law be something much cooler, but it's a reality. Ride the bike with the lowest gears you have so mm. that you can spin. Make the ride as flat as possible. Uh, don't look at the bike computer. Record the data if you want, but don't look at the numbers at all, even a little bit. The speed should be silly low, uh, low enough to bother you. Uh, and heart rate may be oddly elevated if you are really in need of recovery. Um, wattage will be mm, largely non-existent. Yeah. Uh, and then don't go for longer than an hour. A half hour even can be enough. Uh, again, no fatigue. You know, you're trying to do the opposite of that. So I don't Strava anything, but I do have a Strava account. There may be a few things there uh, for anyone who does happen to follow me on Strava. Uh, I can imagine it's pretty unrewarding, but also most of those rides will look like recovery rides. Go on. <laughs> <laughs> OK, I, I do have one other piece of training advice that helps recovery rides, though it's usually tossed out of all other training rides, despite its utility. Don't try to accomplish anything else on a recovery ride. Like, it's not uncommon for people to go on a hard training ride where they might do some climbing and maybe they do some sprinting and there could even be a long interval in there. You talk to any coach and they will tell you, train one system at a time. So don't try to combine it with an endurance ride or a cool tour of the city with your significant other who doesn't ride much. It go alone and, and go easier than you, than you want to be seen going. <laughs> yes. Slow enough to embarrass yourself. Um, yeah. There, there is a, an, an Italian expression for this that comes out of pro racing recovery mm -hmm. rides. And it's, mm -hmm. it translates to going for a walk with the bike. Mm -hmm. And for the life of me, I have not been able to find the Italian for it. Oh, I used to know it. <laughs> I feel like I did as well. But all of my efforts, all of the Googles in the world have not turned up this expression, which I desperately would like to have desperately, uh, not desperately, but I would really like to have in my <laughs> lexicon. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, oh, one one other last final little tidbit on this. Um, People with a stationary trainer, that's another great way to do this. Um, you know, back the, tr uh, back the resistance all the way off, be in an easy gear, just move the legs. That's all it is. Move the legs. Um, and, you know, as I opened this with, uh, I was, my legs were feeling it from a, a hike. Um, there'd been a lot of elevation gain, even though it was not technically difficult. Uh, and, um, yeah, I didn't manage to get out for that uh, recovery ride, but there have been many instances in my past where uh, a recovery ride really did make me feel better. Uh, my challenge is that I, ha I live on a steep hill, so right. the only way is to come back up the hill, which sort of defeats the point. But I, you know, I hadn't thought of doing it on the trainer. Uh, usually I'm, I get on the trainer to hurt myself. Uh, right. Right. But that that's an interesting idea. I yeah. might take I might take that up. 
It's funny. When I first started writing, I didn't know what easy was at all. And what I thought hard was, was not really all that hard. Hmm. It's, I mean, I thought I knew what bike riding was once I learned how to ride a bike. And the layers of knowledge that I have continued to pile on top of that. I, 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 this is like, you know, when you go see ancient Roman ruins and you see how they quarried other structures from hundreds of years before uh, to make, you know, some of those buildings. Yeah. <laughs> That's a crazy analogy. Uh, <laughs> and, and I am just the guy for that. Yeah. Fair enough. Yeah. Fair enough. <laughs> All right. Let's move on to Paceline Picks. Um, I don't have one pick this week. I have a list. <laughs> I was thinking about what gear was making a difference in my riding right now. Uh-huh. And recognizing that we're still in winter, I thought, why not just give a list of my winter workhorse stuff, the things I use all the time, year after year, the stuff that is critical if I'm going to keep riding year round. Mm-hmm. Most of these items, but not all of them, I've picked before, but this is a chance to kind of underline their quality and put them all in one place. Also, this is about the last point in the season I might consider adding winter-specific stuff. So yes. this is also me drawing a line under winter and mentally mentally moving into spring, even though we're at least a month out from that where I live. Mm-hmm. Okay. First, the most useful cold-weather riding gloves I've ever owned, the Kraft Siberian 2. Mm-hmm. If you don't own a pair, you're missing out. They go everywhere and do everything well. I should probably buy a dozen pairs before they get discontinued for no reason I can think of. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, They're mm-hmm. $64.99. Mm-hmm. Uh, next, another craft item, the Glide Wind Tights. These are actually Nordic skiing tights, but they're perfect for winter riding. Wind front, check. Warm, check. Stretchy, comfortable, and good for all day riding. Check, check, check. $129.99. Next. Oh, did you want to say something about Nordic skiing tights? Uh, I just wanted to ask, um, what does one do to keep those up? Oh, they have a drawstring uh, that will cinch them quite, quite firmly in place. Hmm. That doesn't work for me. That's mm. yeah. because you are an inverted cone. <laughs> I, I, yeah, I'm, I'm like a, an upside down pair. No, I'm not. Uh, uh, despite my great big American caboose, drawstring stuff just never stays put for me and ends up if I make the drawstring sufficiently tight to try to keep the tights from moving. I just end up having to pee a lot. Oh, that was more information than any of the listeners needed. But, but I appreciate your candor. Uh, yeah, well, <gasps> pressure on the bladder. I think that something could happen for others. Could be, could be. It's a good, good, it's a good shout. Anyway, I love those tights. Okay, cool. Next, the Solomon Essential Wool Base Layer. I have one from a couple seasons ago that has a hood, which I love, uh, but I would wear this item on every ride if I could. It's so comfortable, so warm, so not smelly. Mm. $100. Worth it. Okay. Next, the Sportful Pro Vest. I use a windproof vest with pockets. That's critical under my top layer. 
I've been pulling mm -hmm. this one. I've been pulling this one on all winter, riding until I'm warm, and then stowing my extra stuff in the vest pockets. Uh huh. Uh, so uh, perfectly useful. One hundred and forty bucks. That's it. There's other stuff, obviously, that I'm layering in and around these items, but those are my ride or die winter kit elements. Hmm. Uh, and I will probably throw them in a post on the site next week just so they have someplace to live. Cool. Well, my pick this week is a little bit unusual, but it is the result of a conversation I had with guys I ride with uh, a few weeks back. My pick is the SRAM UDH or Universal Derailleur Hanger. Uh, I don't know too many mountain bikers who keep a replacement derailleur hanger in their pack. Uh, and there aren't many mechanicals out there that can more immediately strand a rider than a broken derailleur hanger. Um, SRAM designed the UDH to fit within the parameters for every drivetrain on the market, or at least all the really major ones. Um, and they did a good enough job of it that, uh, what I thought was a relatively limited number of brands who'd adopted it has become really rather significant. So among them, Canyon, Da Vinci, Evil, Factor, Ibis, Niner, Pivot, Rocky Mountain, Santa Cruz, Scott, Yeti, and perhaps most significant, both Specialized and Trek have signed on. <laughs> yeah. When I was first hearing about this, neither of them had signed on yet. Um, I believe Ibis was a pretty early adopter on that, which is how I first encountered it. Um, I, I'm not into advocating that everyone rush out and, and, and buy something new, especially replace your bike just for a derailleur hanger. <laughs> and even though it's only a $16 hanger, not everybody needs to keep one around. Uh, there are still lots of bikes out there that won't accept it. Uh, but I'm talking about it for two reasons. First, I think people shopping for a new bike should keep an eye on this as a feature worth looking for. Uh, it's a genius design. The hanger, if it hits something, is designed to rotate, kind of rotate back and away from whatever it has struck, hopefully creating an opportunity to escape ultimate destruction. Um, also, if the chain falls off the smallest cog, the design is such that it's made so that it kind of encourages the chain to ride up and fall back onto the cog. Uh, mm. It's a little bit of a, uh, it's a, a chain guide in a way. Yeah. So um, now I will also say that I know riders who will keep stuff on them uh, that they may personally never need. Uh, I used to always ride with power bar uh, on my long rides, my long group rides, knowing that somebody I was with was going to bonk and I'd rather have them recovered and helping to pull me home instead of me <laughs> pulling them all the way home. Uh, so the, the UDH may be the, the, the power bar of the 21st century for me. I like what you just said, because number one, it starts out sounding altruistic, but actually it's a power bar. So it's both a punishment and a selfishness because you want that pull home. <laughs> it's, it's your way of saying, look, you screwed this up. Now you have to eat the power bar and take your pull. <laughs> 
you know, um, <laughs> I, 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 I at least managed to m- mix my self-interest with a, a little bit of kindness. Yet again, I appreciate your candor. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so um, I think that keeping a UDH in the pack is just sort of it's the sort of part that could help nurse a rider out of the woods. Um, it's the hero move, you know, saving the unprepared. Right. Yeah. Um, you know, and yeah, it's 16 bucks and it's <laughs> unlike some derailleur hangers where you've got to order them from some arcane parts company that may or may not have them in stock. <laughs> these are being made by multiple companies and they're easy to find on the web. Uh, I am so glad that SRAM did this. So, yeah. Very I good. One. Mm-hmm. Maybe, yeah. I, I, maybe I will invest. I, I'm going to buy another one to keep in, an, in another pack that I use often, but not all the time. Good. Yeah. Yeah. Alrighty. Definitely saddlebaggable, too. Mm-hmm. Sure. Yeah. It's not big at all. Um, all righty. That's a wrap on another episode of The Pace Line. Uh, you still in skiing mode this next weekend? I will be skiing this weekend, hopefully. Uh, yes. Uh, and then quickly returning to biking. Mm. I'm trying to do it all. I'm trying to do it all. I'm trying to keep the body. Right now, I'm fairly injury free, and I'm just going to try to uh, stay that way. Yeah, just be quiet <laughs> and hope no one notices that I'm not injured. What about you? I have designs on going out and doing a long gravel ride uh, this coming Saturday. I don't know what the course is yet, but I will almost certainly take in Willow Creek Road out in West County, which is possibly my favorite road in the whole world. Oh. Uh, it's it's a beautiful place, and it's a really fun descent because it's not especially steep, um, and it's a little loose in spots. Mm. Yeah. Just um, enough to keep you interested. Exactly. Keep you on your toes. Yeah. Um, yeah. I did, so, a, I did a long gravel ride last week. I was kind of yearning for a little bit of hurt, a little bit of adventure, a little bit of, but a lot of the um, normal places I would go were soft and it ended up being uh, sort of a long, bad road ride because the roads are covered in, Yeah, the roads are actually covered in gravel and salt and sand and dirt uh, and the shoulders are all falling apart because they've been plowed. And so it was not a great ride, but... I wish you luck. I uh, I won't need nearly as much luck. No. Um, alrighty. Uh, this would be where we ask you to subscribe. If you haven't already, go ahead, click that button now, uh, or at least drop by our site and click that button. Sure. Uh, and if you haven't already check out our other podcast revolting, which lives up to its name in some, uh, most highly entertaining ways. Uh, let's see. Uh, Maybe consider leaving a review wherever it is you found us. It makes us uh, more makes it more likely other people will listen in. Constructive criticism is also accepted. Okay, until next week, I'm Patrick Brady with John Lewis. Thanks for listening to the Pace Line. Mm-hmm.